Hey, y'all, it's Orlando. We want to let you know that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast episode are those of the co-hosts and guests and not their sponsoring institutions. Now, let's start the show. Hello, Detroit and the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from our Zoom platforms <laughs> in partnership with Audio Wave Network Studios inside the Stoudemire Wellness Hub, sponsored by the Ford Foundation. And we are a content partner to BridgeDetroit.com. I am Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Giffens-Davidson. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on our platforms. We drop a new episode every week, so be sure to turn on those notifications. Today, we are discussing our tendency to conflate trauma with culture, as well as the romanticism we carry as a people for experiences that are oftentimes traumatizing to us. We will be discussing the, the, the celebritization and immortalization of the quote unquote bad guys and girls that we love to love and revere. We'll also carry the tension of Detroiters wanting to feel safe and the surveillance we are all under in this city. Here to help us talk about this is PhD candidate at Union University, Yusuf Bunchy Shakur and longtime city builder and thought leader out of Philly, Michael O'Brien, future Dr. Yusuf and Michael, welcome to Authentically Detroit. No, I think I think based on Yusuf's gear, his current university affiliation is clearly the University of Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> where Yusuf, where is the Union University uh, gear at, bro? Uh, still at the stuff. <laughs> well, we, we, I'm, work, I'm working on that, man. <laughs> It's I'm good to see you, man. You look so, you, I wish y'all could see you, so he looks so distinguished. You got the salt and pepper happening. <laughs> right, right. I don't know what I'm saying. I like the look. I love the look, man. Thank you, thank you, man. <laughs> and Michael, Michael O'Brien, my friend out of Philly, Pennsylvania. What's up, brother? How are you? So, man, I'm well, I'm well. I'm, I'm a little tired today. It's cold. I feel like it's I'm cool. in Detroit. Look how cold it is here. Feels like Detroit. Yeah, it's cold. It's cold right now in Detroit. It's cold in the D. Donna, how's the day finding you? It's good. It's good. You know, um, I it's the first day when I have not had a had a deadline in a whole week. I came back from vacation. I had all of these things I had to do. And so today I was kind of chill. You know, last night I watched the um the college championship football game and I watched um, Georgia beat Alabama. And the score was not that much different than when Georgia beat U of M. So, um, you know, if you follow football, then you probably disagree with me, but I felt vindicated by that game. <laughs> Donna, I actually think it's really, really dope that you are such a college football fan. I think that's dope. You don't see that too often. Is she a college football fan or is she a U of M football fan? You know, I'm a college football fan. Let me tell you, my son ran track um, from the time that he was in seven to the time he was 18. He was supposed to actually run track at U of M, but he changed his mind and decided to have fun instead. 
Um, but in the process, <laughs> I got to know a lot of young men who went to college playing football. And up until then, I knew nothing about football. So my sister laughs at me. She listens to Authentically Detroit, so she's going to laugh listening to this. She laughs at me because she used to make up rules for um, sports. And since I didn't know anything, I believed them. And she, you know, humiliate me and laugh at me. And now um, I am the resident expert in our family. So it's like, you know, what happened, Donna? But I just got to know people who played. And yes, most of them played for U of M. My kid's track coach was Stan Edwards, who used to play for U of M. His son, Braylon Edwards, Braylon. was at U of M when my kids were running track for him. And, you know, but his son, Berkeley, went to Minnesota. And then, um, so we, we, we followed the, the teams and I got to know the young people. And so it was really getting to know young people and watching my son play a little bit of football, which he didn't like that, you know, exposed me to the sport. <laughs> Speaking of football, and we're talking about trauma today, I went to Eastern Michigan University. You don't want to, if you, you don't want to follow our football team at EU, man. Ah! Well, it's, it's really good to see everybody. Hopefully the day is finding each of you. All right. It is time for Hot Takes, where we run down some of the week's top headlines in the city of Detroit for Hot Takes. First story up that we want to uh, talk about, how do Detroiters really feel about bike lanes? This is by Bryce Huffman at Bridge Detroit. So, you know, uh, point of clarification that I saw somebody make online. It's how Detroiters feel about bike lanes and not bikes. Donna, what say you? I mean, um, first of all, let's start with the price tech. $14 million spent on bike lanes since 2011. And um, we live in a city where there are so many urgent needs. So you have to ask yourself, how did you arrive at that? And city planners say, well, it's because so many people in Detroit don't have cars. Um, well, why not public public transportation? I mean, we built this expensive M1 line or what, I don't remember what you call it, Q line, it's, it's, it's these new names, the Q line. But what people really want is bus service that works, rail service that works, anything that will help take people from A to B. Riding a bike on a day like today is a non-starter. And the bike lanes, the way they have been planned and thrown up just make people very frustrated because they seem unsafe. Nobody is being included in the planning process. And like there's bike lanes in front of our offices on, on, on in front of the Stoudemire Wellness not need on Connor to drive through. that make no sense. I have never seen a person ride a bike through there and I pray I don't because it's not safe. It's also a trucking route, right? So do you want a bike lane next to a truck route? So I think that, um, you know, they're saying that there's um, an increase in, in bike ridership and I ride bikes. I actually like bike riding. But I think that bike lanes are um, still a contentious issue in part because of the prioritization of bikes over other types of transportation and also the decision making around where to put the bike lanes. And, you know, we live in a city where we're spending maybe four million dollars in a good year on home repair grants. So when you compare four million dollars in home repair grants to, say, three or four million dollars in bike lanes, it doesn't look like justice. Yeah. It doesn't. And, you know, uh, one of the things that you said that sort of strikes me is the the throwing up of these bike lanes without any real community education on how to use them as not only a biker, but as a driver. I can't tell you how many drivers I've seen riding down Jefferson and Connor using the bike lane as a real 
lane and like you know just just how dangerous that is especially on a street like Connor where that that street is nothing but industry and you have Stellantis's truck trucks and uh freight trucks riding up and down Connor um, all day and so that price tag of 14 million you can't help but think of what else we could have done with uh that money yeah and you know what it, it, it's it's kind of insulting. We have a business there. There's lots of businesses along Craner Avenue. Why don't we get a notification? We're putting a bike lane up. What do you think? Come here to a design meeting so we can talk about it. Now, Connor wasn't as ridiculous, but now they're planning a new streetscape on Connor. Still haven't asked us about it, where they're going to take it down to two lanes on the area going north towards the freeway. And one of those lanes is going to be a lane that is also a bus lane. So it will be down to one lane traffic with all of the trucks nobody talked about. Have you been on Kerchival lately? I have. Have you been on Kerchival, Yusuf? Not recently. Come you east. From the east. You come east. east. You got to come east and see what they I did to Kerchival. Because I, I don't understand it at all. <laughs> come to the east side, Yusuf. It's okay over here. We good. Over here. <laughs> to the east side. We not, um, we not gonna start that one. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> In hot takes, uh, Warren Evans um, penned an op-ed for British Detroit. It's time to end prison gerrymandering in Michigan. Uh, one of the first times I heard the term. And his lead says this, no citizen who has ever been incarcerated would make the mistake of confusing their prison cell with their home. Prison is nobody's home. So it should be obvious that incarcerated people in Michigan should be counted as residents based on where they choose to live and where they will likely return upon release, not where they are temporarily and involuntarily housed. Typically returning citizens do not remain in the rural areas where those prisons are located after their period of incarceration is done. They return home after their release to their own communities and where they lived prior to their sentences. It is, um, it is, it is, uh, you know, I guess it's, it's, it's funny hearing this from a law enforcement professional, right? Uh, like, War <laughs> I see you, Susan. I think. <laughs> get really big. Um, but, you know, uh, Sergio Martinez Beltran, who we had on the show last week, also uh, penned an article you know, naming prison gerrymandering where rural areas get to count folks who are incarcerated as their citizens to obtain political power and um, preference uh, in redistricting maps, census, all of that. And it almost always disadvantageously affects communities of color, communities where marginalized people reside, like the city of Detroit. We do know in the state of Michigan that Black folks alone make up about 13, 14% of the population in the state of Michigan, but we are overrepresented. And when I say overrepresented, almost 50% of us make up the prison population in the state of Michigan. This is absurd. This is obscene. And I don't understand how this continues to be allowed without a real public debate in the marketplace of ideas on how we remedy this and how our representation has been stifled and lopsided in the state of Michigan because of this unjust practice that has been going on for years. This is particularly close to my heart because I have two brothers who are incarcerated in rural areas in Michigan, and they are Detroiters. They grew up in Detroit. They were born in Detroit 
and they will return to Detroit when they come home. But we do not get to see the benefit of their citizenship in the city of Detroit because they are housed involuntarily in these rural areas. I just, I don't understand uh, the logic and understand how this is still a practice in 2021. What say you guys? Well, you know, to me, it's just if, if prisons are the 21st century plantations, then um, it reminds me of the three-fifths compromise where um, black bodies were counted to build political power for plantation owners in Southern states while they didn't have the right to vote or any other rights. And so in this 21st century, you have wardens acting like um, overseers, you have um, prison labor being uncompensated and you have people whose bodies are counted when they cannot vote. Um, and so I think it's a racial justice issue at the core of what's still wrong in our nation. It's a, you know, 13 part two, why are we still doing this? Why? Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I real quick, uh, means the context of the, of the lawmakers, the, the, or the policy makers who, who created this, this type of policy to, to exist, which is white men and white women, but also it's tied to Donna's point where black bodies are still looked at as, as a commodity. Um, it's just a different form, formation of that, that commodity, which also continues to say that our bodies don't, don't matter or don't value or not value. And that's why I would love to, I haven't read the article, uh, one Evans to go that way and also talk about himself all the millions of dollars him and his brother made off of the um, the phone system that they ran in, in Wayne County jails. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know. Wait, I think wait, 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 wait! No, we can't move on from that. What? When he when when Warren Evans was the uh, what he used to be the Wayne County when he was over the Wayne County uh, sheriffs. Yeah, him and, and you his say brother, his brother Blair. Yeah, him him and his brother Blair they owned the phone system for the county jails or something like that. They, they, they financially benefited from it. I, I know they owned a, um, a school district for um, incarcerated youth in Highland yeah. Park. So, uh, you know, yeah, we make good money for, I mean, it, that, that, that is very problematic. The phone system is one of the most egregious abuses. And expensive. And so that, that's the other thing, the, the contractors that the Michigan Department of Corrections chooses to use that uh, folks like me who have loved ones and friends who are incarcerated make rich because I got to keep money on the phone. I got to use the JPay app and I got to buy stamps and I got to send letters. I also have to put money on commissary and I don't know who those contractors are. Like all, all of those things, it is completely, it is completely asinine that this is still going on. And what's even more crazy is that this is being pinned by Warren Evans. I'm like, hello. <laughs> You know, listen, I met I met Blair at a at the box center in some progressive circle. I had no idea that he was engaged in this. I thought he was a progressive. He was going to free us, right? And so it's just interesting <laughs> to me, you know. Uh, what is our standard around um, how we treat each other and what we do? Because we live in a capitalist environment where everything, um, you know, where there's extract, it's extractive. And especially the black and brown bodies. And so when we do it to each other, that even feels more harmful. And sometimes we actually facilitate other people doing it to us. I wonder what racism and um, commodification would look like if you couldn't put a black man as, as, in as emergency manager, what would we have done mm. without the black face there to calm us and 
you know, um, be your frat brother. So we can't really talk about him now. So, you know, I mean, I, I think that we have ways of really acting against our own people in situations like that. That is extremely disappointing to hear that. Well, that wraps up Hot Takes. If you have pieces that you want discussed on the podcast, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com. So for our feature discussion this week, we are talking to our guest about the stripes we earn being from marginalized communities with our fair share of traumatizing experiences, right? Mike, I wanna, I wanna start with you. And you know, we want to carry this conversation with um, a lot of nuance and we wanna you know, have it carefully, but we also want it to be authentic and raw to the, to the best that we can do. But why do we wear our trauma like, a badge of honor a lot of the times what is what has happened in our psyche well i think there are a couple of different things combining to make this a a, a regular right thing for us to that we sit in one is a lot of it has to do with power so in general trauma is uh marked by the absence of power. That's one of the main constituent parts of, of what makes a trauma traumatic or what makes a trauma a trauma, right? Um, and, and you know me, I'm about to give you a, a definition because I don't want people listening and being like, I didn't have power to get off the highway. That's traumatic, right? Because I think that's the other thing is <laughs> language becomes so, you know, the term is colloquial. Like we, we use language so much in, uh, as humans because it's just a part of like, daily living but the problem is we use words in all kinds of settings where it's not necessarily the most appropriate it takes on its own definition and then all of a sudden you know driving in traffic is traumatic and my friend getting shot is traumatic and those two things are not necessarily the same thing right unless i'm going to see my mom in the hospital and there is an expiration date on her life and i'm nearing that moment and i'm trying to get there in traffic now is traumatic. Um, you know, I have a deadline that I have to meet and I might lose my job if I don't get there now. That tra traffic might be traumatic, but often traffic's just annoying and it's not traumatic, but we'll use that kind of language. So in clearing up the definition of trauma, I like to use two different ones that I think are pretty simple, um, but really powerful at the same time. The first one is from the American Psychiatric Association and they state that trauma uh, involves a perceived or literal threat to one's physical or emotional well-being and it is going to elicit or bring out intense feelings of terror helplessness or a lack of control and it's particularly that last part that has to do with power right because anytime when you have no control and you are terrified and you can't control what anything happening in the moment particularly you can't stop the thing that is happening to you no matter how hard you try or how much you want or will it to uh that is uh, a part of the identifiers right of, of an experience being traumatic um again a perceived literal threat to your emotional or physical well-being keyword there being perceived or literal right so by default i also can't tell you what's traumatic because i can't i'm not inside of you i can't perceive what you see as a threat 
Um, and again, that feeling, uh, excuse me, that experience is going to bring out of you feelings of terror, helplessness, or a lack of control. Again, we're talking about power in that last part. The other definition I'll submit to you comes from a guy named Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote a fantastic book called The Body Keeps the Score. If anybody ever wants to read one book on trauma, uh, I typically often recommend that one. And what Dr. Bessel van der Kolk says, paraphrasing, is that a traumatic experience is when whatever is happening to you overwhelms your internal and external abilities or resources to cope. So based on those two definitions, I think you can probably, and your listeners can probably hear why I'm talking about power as being part and parcel to why we can take things that make us feel utterly powerless and try to turn them into something that actually mm -hmm. defines power for us. Because I took something back, actually. Uh, that thing that had control over me, oh, no, well, we're just going to change the story around it. And actually, not only did I change the story around it, I changed it into something that no longer had control over me in a particular kind of way, even if it might have control over me to an extent, right? So poverty becomes something that we can move around through and mess with and figure out ways that we can have power while still experiencing poverty. And then certain things start to become a badge of honor because we're going to, again, circumvent the narrative and the meaning we're making out of it. And it's no longer going to rob me of control and choice. I'm going to find my center of control in this somewhere and get me some power back. And this sim in here, the simplest place I point that out is in school, right? You, you wanna, if you're a teacher, you know there's one thing you can never do. You can't win in an argument with a kid. That's the wrong paradigm. It's not about winning or losing in an argument with a young person. Because if you win the argument, now you just look like a jerk in front of everybody else into that kid. And if you lose the argument, now you've lost respect, right? So you've got to actually step out of a win-lose paradigm and be focused on building relationships, right? But there's this thing where young people, if they lack power in other places, they'll just grab it wherever they can. They don't care. So in the middle of your classroom, in the middle of your lesson, so you got to actually be thoughtful as a teacher, depending on the kind of neighborhood you're working in, where people might experience a lot of powerlessness, and you're going to have to build places for young people to have power, or they'll just grab it wherever they can. And that's just teacher management kind of one-on-one. Especially a narrative. Go ahead, Donna. Where does pain, grief, and loss fit into this definition of trauma? Yes. Because it seems like, you know, physical trauma is certainly, um, you know, a direct assault on somebody and it's not the psychological thing of fear it is responding to something that is very concrete so i'm wondering how your definitions and in incorporate those issues so i just want to make sure i got you you said fear grief and loss right right uh, those loss. are like concrete yeah happenings loss causes an experience of so I'm pain grief and loss i'm sorry. Pain. sorry so pain is a cause of trauma right um, as, as much as it's like a byproduct to an extent, right? But pain is something that you experience because of things like loss, uh, because of expectation management, right? Or expectations that aren't met. So pain, particularly the kind of pain that also produces grief become, if you will, feeders of what we would call traumatic grief. It's, it's deeper, right? It is heavy. It takes lots of time to get over, if you get over anything, right? Because grief is about the kind of losses in our lives where 
we cannot go back to what we had prior. Mm. That is a very hard psychological, talk about powerlessness. Mm -hmm. You lose a parent, you lose a child, you lose a loved one, a best friend. There are high schools in Philadelphia where a young person can go in at 14 and by 18, on average, they might lose five young people a year. You lose, you can lose up to 20 friends by the time you graduate. We don't even have a way to organize that kind of grief. It's so bad, there's research now on the grief gap. Okay, go ahead, Donna. Wow, a grief gap. Well, I, I was gonna ask this later, but you know, I um, was just revisiting Dr. Joy Degree and her construct of post-traumatic slavery syndrome. Where do you stand on that? I think she's 100% right. I think she's 250% right. <laughs> Coming across a lecture of hers when I was like 23 and like screaming and jumping up and down because right. in, for 24, because in my work at that point, you know, I've been studying trauma for about three years at that point, trauma theory and resilience theory. And I kept going, like, but I'm also black. Like I got a whole history of stuff. Plus, I have to deal with the way that the world responds to my blackness and the way that the world has conceptualized what being black means to them and therefore having to deal with the ways that they perceive me as a threat or as, uh, you know, immoral or as whatever, you know, they've, they've organized around this identity. And it just didn't, <laughs> there didn't seem to be a lot of space for those kind of conversations. And so when I ran into her work, I was excited and astounded. And she says something fascinating that I love because it's also partly how I got into the study of trauma. She mentioned that she went down this pathway because she was trying to understand violence amongst black people. To understand like, what is that? Why is that happening? Because we weren't always this violent, if you will. And I put that all in air quotes because I mean, arguably the question is, are, how violent are we really? Or is it just the structure by which we organize these data points that determine us to be violent by the ways that people, again, are uh, qualifying what's violent? Because if you ask me, you know, right, how we frame that narrative. That's uh, right. You know, violence is always interesting to me when we call Black people violent. This nation was birthed in violence. Yes. We spend more of our budget on police forces and cities and military at the national level than we do on anything else. And that is violence, okay? The creation and just ownership of an atomic bomb is violence in the extreme. How dare we call black people violent when we have been violated? You know, right. and it just seems to me that you take the violated and call us violent and, we, and, and, and people just pass it on like it's okay. Like violence, like we were segregated. Everything about our existence in America has been violence. Poverty is violence. Segregation is violence. Incarceration is violence. is violence. We live in a world where people, we live in a country that worships guns. The Second Amendment is the most valued amendment. And yet we are violent as a people and we buy into that. You know what I mean? I think it's so crazy that we have internalized those labels. But I want to bring Yusuf into this conversation because Yusuf, you said something really profound. And when I listened to Dr. He's George- always saying something profound. He does. Uh, you got to listen to him though, because he, <laughs> he just drops some knowledge in the middle of something. It's like, but I want to. <laughs> but no, okay. So one of the profound things that Yusuf said recently is I'm um, talking about culture, right? 
And so you listen to what Dr. Degree says, and it's brilliant. I listen to it every year just so I can stay on track, right? She keeps me focused. Um, but when she talks about how we function as a people as post-traumatic slavery disorder, right? We call that culture. Or I think that's what Yusuf was getting at. Can you talk more about what you meant by that, Yusuf? You Yusuf, you're muted. muted. You're muted if you're talking. Sorry about that. Thank you. <laughs> the new world we live in, right? <laughs> to, put, uh, to put things in context, so in you know, as I'm going through my PhD program, and you know, there's a ton, tons of reading in any program, but particularly at this this level, as Mike just referenced, right? There's theories. There's, there's a lot of different theories. As he, I didn't know there was a trauma theory. There was a resilient theory, uh, along with uh, you know, this queer theory, this critical race theory. It's critical theory, but there's no, but there's no theory related to black people. Mm -hmm. I repeat, there's no theory related to black people. So again, when you look in each, and most theories are born out of certain studies or certain struggles. So even like feminist, feminist theory and feminist uh, was born out of the feminist struggle. Same thing with queer theory. So you have black studies, but we didn't produce a black social theory. And so my point is, and, and that is the, the inability to synthesize our experience, what we've been through to help us to rationalize it, to rationalize our trauma associated with our, our pain that's tied to our oppression. We continue to be bathed in it and, and within it, the black social theory, it should help us define finally, what is our culture? What is, what, what is the culture? So like, I mean, it's four of us on right here right now. We, we all consider ourselves black. But if, if we was all, we would all probably give a different definition around black. Let's try it. Because of, because of our different lived experience, because of things that, that we've um, we've read. So we have to come up with a, a, a concrete definition to black. And black black doesn't necessarily represent the culture. Black is black, black is the aesthetics, the things that we've developed out of our struggle. You know, black, black was born out of the um the resistance to the inferiority that was imposed upon us. Because remember, you know, we had been given every other name but our right name in this country. Black was the only name that we had you know, really gave to ourselves, which became a political identity as a framework. But over the years, because it has not been synthesized, it has lost its meaning. You know, we're now, um, you know, we, we associate our pain with, with our trauma, with our oppression. I mean, look, you know, I'm pretty sure we all li we listen to hip hop, right? Yeah. Like I challenge, like I challenge, I challenge hip hop. But I don't think it's a culture; it's a subculture, right? I mean, because of, um, I mean, it has the elements of it, but in reality, there's the, the high level of, of of hip hop. It celebrates the oppression, the internalized oppression that goes on within within our community, and be and because it's a form of capital, we can capitalize off of it. We can, you know, it's, it's easy to, to be able to put us out there because at the end of the day, black folks try to hustle. We try to pay the bills. And so what's the, what's the easier way to pay the bills than to make fun of yourself when, when you have not healed or confronted that? So to be able to identify and understand culture, we have to understand the, by creating a theory. And the theory is, is, is about, it comes out of our experience, the experience of black people in America to define us to create the standard and the criteria. And also this is what you know, Bobby E. Wright, who called for a black social theory that helps us define who black people is in the 21st century. Can we, can we talk a little bit about 
root causes because I, I I also hear us talking about you know being traumatized and one of the things that I want to name is that there are still so many of us who are in active trauma right um, can we talk about uh, root causes of black marginalization um, in America and the many ways that trauma is processed by us and how we show up because of it, be it uh, productive or non-productive ways um, on the pavements of our neighborhood. My, I think like what just happened recently with Antonio Brown, right? And where he walks, he walks off the field, he takes off his shirt and the media response, everybody says Antonio Brown needs help. Not here to argue or dispute that, but the, the level of anti-Blackness that exists in the world, that is part of the root causes. And many of us don't even realize that we're looking at Antonio Brown as we look at each and every one of ourselves through a lens of anti-Blackness. The fact that not, not giving, you know, a Lando Mike or a Donna the chance, you know, same thing in, where, you know, the whole by Black is, is part of it is, we don't trust black business. We don't trust black people. But why is that? Because we we've been we we've been taught to hate ourselves. We've been taught not to value each other because I I mean they're just like today, um, you know, Harborough, you know, the coach of, of U of M. You know, everybody's <laughs> talking about whether he's gonna uh take a take a job in the NFL. And, they, and the way they frame this says he wanted to wait till Black Monday. He wanted to write to Black Monday, and Black Monday mean, meaning the coaches who get fired yesterday. And so my point is, in this country, everything that's evil and bad is associated with what? Black. And that is part of that internalization that, that we go through. And at the end, then it alludes to what Mike was talking about earlier, too, is a power dynamic. And when we think about Black, we don't think about power with Black. We think about powerless. And so we want to we want to be associated with with power. So that's another form a connection to that to that root cause of not being valued, um, being oppressed, and it's all tied into what many are identifying now as anti blackness. Mike, I want to bring you in on this conversation. You were making a point a little bit earlier around um, this this narrative of violence and us being violent and how uh, we show up. Uh, toward each other. I um, want to ask you, number one, to expound on that um, a little bit more, um, linking it to uh, some of the root causes that all of us experience at one point or another in our lives. Yeah, um, I might ask you for a clarifying question on root causes when I get to that part. But you know, the, I <laughs> my friends laugh at me because I, I think it's the best creative uh, branding job of the 21st century, and that is the uh, branding of black people as inherently violent. I mean, it's like a cosmic joke, to, to Donna's point earlier. Like, I don't even need to say much else because she nailed it, right? I mean, it is, it is fascinating to be descended from people who are stolen from their land for their human capital, but denied their humanity, put to work in a ultra-violent system that said things, and this is referencing the work of Dr. Joy DeGray, right? Like, that women couldn't even be sexually assaulted because they, by law, they were given over to lasciviousness. They were promiscuous by nature. So the idea of raping a black woman just wasn't even possible, right? 
I mean, this is this is the country, and that's in the 1800s. That's not even like 1619 and going that far back, right? I mean, this is the country that we live in, and, and these are the narratives and myths that are still shaping the the way that modern medicine considers our black bodies in in space and place. And it's something that people are confronting. I'll give them that credit, but we're not going to act like this violence hasn't existed across multiple sectors across multiple centuries and was not challenged. It was not challenged. So much so that when I went to see the uh, work of Brian Stevenson and his team down in uh, Alabama and literally got sick halfway through the museum uh, because of these photos of 9,000 white people gathering to hang and burn black bodies in the early 1900s. Another scene of like 6,000 white people excited to burn and hang black bodies and cut babies out of women's stomach. And again, bro, we're not, this isn't 1820. There are clear pictures. This is 1930. People living today. Right. We're celebrating that. And my favorite one in Dr. Degree, remember the one where she shows the little girl who's watching the charred yes. body of a lynch, and she's sitting here looking at him like this. And she said, if you did that to a puppy, that child would be traumatized. But that child is looking there at that, and that is the impact of the behavior of her parents and that culture on that child that it is not just black people who walked away. And it kind of reminds, reminds me of Aimé Césaire um, in the discourse on colonialism, where he talks about the fact that when you dehumanize people, the beast, you become a beast, okay? You cannot retain your humanity by dehumanizing others. You become the beast. So we live in this nation where the beast is acting like the victim, you know, and where and trying to hide their hands because we are talking about it, but we're trying to outlaw it in every state and every school district and accusing people of critical race theory for even bringing up race because that's the other thing that's happened is this gaslighting behavior of saying, we're gonna pretend like racism doesn't exist. I can't even tell you're black. You know, I, I don't see race. I don't care about green people, black people, red people, orange people, I don't see race. And it's a denial of culpability really, right? A hundred percent. And I think the other thing that you just, you know, took the words right about right out of my mouth around dehumanization, we actually have to name it and center it in the work and in the conversation, because black people have been taught to dehumanize ourselves. We've been taught to but it, without using that term, though. Right. This is it's it, it accompanies or is alongside the journey of white supremacy. White supremacy became this term that we could not use anymore. But the activity never went away. Yeah. that That's like calling a dog a cat. Like, you can switch labels, but treat that dog that is really a cat like a dog, and you will wear, literally on your body, the pain of trying to socialize that cat as the dog that you're calling it. <laughs> literally what we've been doing it, right? Try to wash a cat. Right? <laughs> I've got two cats, and I'm trying to imagine them as dogs. <laughs> 
Like it just wouldn't work. But that, that literally is the, the, the absurdity of this country over the last hundred plus years. I tell you, there's a book I read that blew my mind. Two books that I read that blew my mind. But this one really just made me go, oh my God. Came out in 20, 2017, 2018. It's called Hitler's American Model. Yeah. It was the yeah. title that grabbed me. I said, ooh. Yeah. Ooh, this yeah, is. Isabel Wilkerson talks about it in Cass. Yes. Yes, she does. I, I read that book, Orlando, and was like, what in the good hell? How? 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 But this is it's a choice to craft a narrative that says those Germans, the Nazis, the epitome of scum, America stepped in and saved the world. And then when you read this book, you go, oh, oh, wow. Not only were we the inspiration behind Nazi race law, American race law was the inspiration behind Nazi race law. The part that blew my mind was there are moments when they were gathered and said, you know what? That's a little too mean. We're not going to do that. Can you believe that? Nazi Germany said we were too mean. You know, I mean, it is it is the writing down of a thing, the 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 thought and putting it to paper, creating this narrative that can uh, precipitate hundreds and hundreds of years of oppression, of murder, of uh, mass genocide. Uh, Yusuf, I want to bring you in um, <laughs> on this conversation around um of narrative power is something that i'm passionate about and uh you constantly leverage your platform to number one introduce us to new terms and new ways of thinking you know distancing ourselves from what we have been taught and internalized for decades and decades you're muted we should we just we should tell the future dr yusuf to just stay off of uh, mute. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, I think it's important though that we have to realize that we have to unlearn what we know to learn what we don't know. We have to unlearn what we know to learn what we don't know. And part of that is unlearning what they told us about ourselves to be able to see our authentic selves, not only as an individual, but as collective and community. So to this point around narrative, if I ask anybody around, you know, we did a poll about Malcolm X. Was he violent or nonviolent? Most people are going to say Malcolm X was violent. But there's, there's, when Malcolm X becomes Malcolm X, there's nothing that shows that he's ever, he was ever violent. He's ever shot anybody. He ever smacked anybody. But because what they've, what they've told us about Malcolm, that he, same thing like the Black Panther Party. Like we think the way they told us about the Black Panther, we think they, they, they was worse than KKK, right? But that's the dynamics of the white supremacy, white oppression. In terms, it's sophisticated too, and in terms of the the reality, like they view us as a threat. So, 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 how do you neutralize that threat by creating the, this this false image, this this false dichotomy of, of them in terms of like we're violent? And so, this is also was part of the police why why they kill us because again, you know, Orlando, you know, you you reaching for your pick. Oh, I thought the pick was a gun. You know, but it's 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 the perception, it's the threat that that it 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 ignites in them that they I fear for my life. And then we and if we I'm pretty sure we would go back and we listen to some of those interviews. Most of them say something along those lines because it, it's even though we're in the modern time, they still they still look at us as savages. Yeah. Because that was the justification for our for our for our oppression, right? <laughs> and then. 
they the way we 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 uh we function i told you that they was that that's what they are you know in terms of the, the ghetto and then our own people our own the, those who are so influent who, who are moving away they help maintain that narrative too like okay you know through uh, respectability politics absolutely exactly, exactly. Absolutely. So, so, so it's important that, that we have to reshape and, and challenge those challenge those things and to be able to do that again we i repeat again we have to unlearn what we know to learn what we don't know but you know i think what's even more threatening to um white supremacy than a black person behaving in a threatening manner is a black person defying their um, stereotypes. I've never seen, I remember when I was an undergrad and um, this white classmate of mine came to me and I um, had this black professor as an uh, African-American history um, class and a white girl came to me and she says, you try to be so smart. She tries to be so smart and she was going off on her, you know, I've always been opinionated. And so he looked at her, he said, well, how do you try to be smart if you are? Or you weren't. <laughs> she got so mad at me. She was like, she was ready to fight me because she couldn't feel superior to me. And it was important to her identity to feel superior. You saw that really operationalized under the Obama administration. Whenever you think about Obama, the Obamas, um, Barack and Michelle, they represented an existential threat, them and all of the people around them, to this notion of white supremacy, this notion of them being able to do things that Black people could not speak a certain way, dress a certain way, behave a certain way. Here you had this president who emulated all of what they said they believed in. And it just seems to me as though we have to acknowledge the fact that respectability is no, um, is no cure. In, in the 1960s, black men were being killed in business suits and, you know, um, overcoats and nice hats. I mean, they, it, it was women were being killed, um, had dogs sicked on them and nice dresses and heels and pearls on their necks. So when we buy into that, not only is it wrong to dehumanize one group, but it's not even a solution. I think our solutions have to be other than trying to accommodate the white gaze in any way, because the white gaze is always going to want to see us a certain way, punish us for being a certain way, and then punish us for being the other way, because we're not white. And the white gaze barely even likes other white people. Like, I think <laughs> right. it's like whiteness as a construct has evolved over time. They, you know, reluctantly let in other people that they did not consider white because they needed a power block, right? So there is this thing where Historically and in a contemporary sense, you see it. They are willing, white people are willing, white people of a certain amount of power are willing to put other white people on the chopping block to maintain that power. And that, that's just the thing that I, I, I got it when I saw the way they treated their own children who were getting shot up. And I was like, oh, oh, oh yeah. You ain't, taking, you ain't taking my gun. We don't care. I was like, wow, yeah. But we're not violent. Can we? Speaking of speaking of white gaze, I want to bring this this level of nuance in into the conversation. I want to talk about uh, the enticement of commodification of some of the traumatic experiences uh, that Black folks have had to endure and continue to endure. And when I say commodification, Yusuf, future Dr. Yusuf. Um, I'm talking about hip hop. I'm talking about shows like BMF and Power and Snowfall. I'm talking about our our love and affinity for the gangster, for 
the mur you know the murderer i'm talking about american gangster frank lucas i'm talking about all these these figures that we have celebritized um as a culture not only for us to to see it play out in a dramatized version not only for us but the white gaze is also watching that and uh affirming um what they what they've been taught for for so long can we can we can we can we dig into this a little bit and can we break that down i think that's an important conversation so like max julian just who just passed right the mac and and he's forever we will we'll be crystallized in our mind for that for that role we won't remember we don't remember for nothing else but there was a movie he played in before that movie it was called uptight as you google it it's on um youtube and uptight actually the scene in um the mac when him and old boy they, they argue and he like we can get in some pimp shit or we can get in some, some some gangster shit they're both in this movie called uptight and in in the and in this movie that Ruby D wrote and produced, they was they was black revolutionaries. They was they was black nationalists. They was fighting for black freedom. And a year later, they're 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 pimps, they're max. And the transition helped change the dichotomy in our community because remember, prior to the movies such as the Mac and Superfly which became leading characters in our community, which ultimately to, to what you're asking, it killed a Huey P. Newton. It killed a Malcolm X. It killed uh, Angela Davis, a Stata Shakur, that the folks in our, you know, the black is beautiful struggle and, and emergence coming into that, you know, in the, the troubling 70s with, with Heron, which getting to Frank Lucas uh, and et cetera, like these become the, writing off of these movies becomes the characters that that we're now fed and then coming into the 80s young boy detroit in particular young yeah. boys incorporated yeah right uh, the east side um what's the east the uh not the chamber boys but the best friends right that that they're folks that that we're upholding and then bring it bringing it back like when even when the movie black panther came out everybody loves um killmonger, killmonger. Everybody, he was like, he was the he man. was a revolutionary, Yusuf. Hold up, don't cop a killmonger. Man, killmonger was was we everything we just talked about. He yeah. was full of trauma, he's full of he anger. Was, However, he, he reminded us of, of our fathers, yeah. he reminded us of our brothers, that aspiration, that hope that we want to see where uh T'Challa, we like fuck T'Challa, he too nice. And but that 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 goes back to the previous conversation that. The internalized hate, this the the anti-blackness, but also the the exploitation. There's no accountability to fifty cent to to our community. They're feeding us these and the, and also and I mean like Big Meech, and I and I, and I tell young people for Big Meech to reach a success, how many how many black families he had to destroy, and I'm not yeah. I'm not talking about Big Meech per se, but in that system to 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 reach his highest height, he had to sell tons of crack cocaine but he you had know, to be willing to kill to do that and who yeah. is he killing us and we, we don't examine that because man that's how it always gonna be yeah, and we accept you, that but you know I, I i'm doing these working on this understanding of detroit right and we talk about all kinds of things about detroit we talk about redlining we talk about this we talk about that we don't talk about big reach <laughs> we don't talk about the chambers brothers 
and we don't have any accountability for how our own people can i mean you 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 snowfall wasn't um the guy in snowfall what's his name um rick ross rick, rick ross, ross was the 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 agent of the ronald reagan war on contra bringing drugs from south america here and creating these cocaine houses now i have to date myself when i think of mac Jul max julian um i'm older than you all so i think of um his coats that were really popular in the 1980s right <laughs> drug dealers but i don't think of um goldie that's that came before me or whatever but i think of his coats we have this whole fashion culture that's designed around that so much of who we are is designed around is um, hyper materialism and you have to kill people to get it you know you have to or be a drug dealer to get it and your average corner boy is not making the kind of money to buy these things so we're celebrating the kingpins mike i want to bring you in on this yeah i mean i i agree but i also just and this could sound like i'm i'm taking up for folks but I think the key part to me and what you just said, Donna, is all of that the Reagan and the Iran-Contra affair and black people don't have enough power in this country to have a drug monopoly. We don't. The same way we don't have enough power in this country to start an independent national school system that can rival the public school system, right? And so there is this space here where the reality of black, if you will, degradation is still found in the hands of white folks. And that's uncomfortable for them. It's uncomfortable for the people who believe like, oh, well, black spending power will solve it. The math, that's not true. The math's not there for that, right? But that's another narrative that's like pushed and people keep pushing. And so I think that to think that, but we're not talking about blame, right? What we're talking about is the capacity. Listen, if we wait for white people to want to stop exploiting and dehumanizing and using us and commodifying us so that we can be healthy, then we will probably be waiting forever. What can we decide as a people we're going to change understanding these forces, understanding what they want from us? They didn't want us to read, but we read. They didn't want us to have businesses, but we have them. So I think that there have been times where we've pushed back against the expectations and the conditions that were set before us. And I'm wondering if we are powerless as a people to create something different than what has been given to us. So it's a yes and, right? Because as much as we started business, they bombed the shit out of those businesses, right? When I think about the amount of terror again visited upon groups of people, yep. over how do we how do we protect it from white from white so terrorism? Thing, like when I think about the generation before me who watched King X, Huey Newey, watch all these assassinations and then just like didn't do anything. I'm like, that's trauma. I get it. You watched everybody get killed for just being like black people and humans deserve to be free and fed. And the response from white people was a systematic takedown that didn't even need to be private. It was the FBI. It was local law enforcement working with them presidents were cool with it like people were cool with it so i do think there that's why i'm saying i don't think it's about blame but when the moment we start talking about commodification and we're naming people it's like yeah but they're not in a vacuum by default like the systems-based analysis of that thing means that when we talk about rick ross it does include all that other stuff so for me it's shifting the frame right it's about i, I don't get too lost in that because i think i'll give you a really 
seemingly asinine metaphor. When my goal is to connect with the young people whose life's trajectory put their body in the way of a bullet and their pants might be sagging no matter how tight they are, I know a number of people who are going to start that conversation with, young man, pull up your pants. That's the 17th conversation I plan on having with that young person. Because the job is to build relationship. You know what I mean? And I think that to me is a part of this space that like I agree with the commodification piece. But the other part that I hear from young people is like, yo, but that some of that is my lived experience. That is my life. And I do want to feel validated in my experience. And I'm not at all suggesting that we attack each other. I'm not suggesting that we put people down, walk in and do the respectability game, right? I am suggesting that we bring each other forward to a system of higher values. And that's mm-hmm. something I think Yusuf is working to do in his community. So now we're able to talk about this community house that you've opened up, Yusuf, where you're looking at introducing different ways of being inside the community without attacking people, but showing people we don't have to be this way. Is that a good way of introducing your work? Yeah, it is. But also part of that that work is the analysis. The analysis is our neighborhoods, particularly black neighborhoods, went from being a neighborhood to being a hood, and it's part of that that, that demodification that that could that laid the groundwork for what we see in the movie um, about Big Meech, you know, BMF and, and Power and so many others that we continue to glorify, right? And and it's until we address the nigger gene. I'm repeat, it's until we address the nigger gene in us. Like, like Puffy would get on TV and say, I'm from Brooklyn, baby. I'm from the hood. When the last time you've been in the hood, Puffy? Right. <laughs> when the last time, and, and, and it's, it's not attack on him, but it's, it, again, the hood became a code word for being black, but also became, it, it morphed into being a code word for a certain area, right? So for me, going back to my area, my community, as a former gang member, former gangster, folks who may want to call me an OG, you know, whatever terms they want to acknowledge, but my term that matters to me is being a man, is being an honorable person in my community. Like the real shit my, my, my oldest son just told me recently, and me and him go through struggles all the time. He was like, dad, when you came home, I was looking for a dope diddy, a dope dealer dad. I repeat, he said, I was looking for a dope dealer dad. I was in prison for, 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 for his first nine years. So the impact of, of the hood helped raise him and helped create certain images in his mind that was con- conflicting. But now he, he and his little homeboys, they have a different option. Of, I remember like when they come in the community house, they're like, damn, man, this, this, I, ain't, I didn't think this would happen, right? But now we give them an option, kind of you know, what Mike's saying, we have to find a different route, but we also have to create the accountability because what we're not talking about too is capitalism. Like we're capitalizing off our pain. We're capitalizing off our off our misery, right? And I mean, I, I'm not like, I'm not mad at the early 50. You know, when, when, when Dr. Dre and Eminem came up on him and said, man, we'll give you a million dollars. What young brother or what young sister wouldn't take a million dollars for a rap, rap record, right? But at this stage, 50, you're no longer in South in South Jamaica, Queens. So that's where part of the accountability has to come in. But also part of the accountability is the, is the changing of the mind. If we don't change the mind, it's easy to put those type of images. But also, we have to think of, think back. Again, all of us, we still live in a, the hood or the neighborhood. 
right? And so in these images that we continue to promote through, through this is, was, was what continued to causing the trauma, the internal trauma, the pain on the blocks where our families live at. So that's why we have to be able to transform that through such as the Mama Core Community House. We also Right. Can we just give Yusuf, I want to make sure we give Yusuf a chance because he's been an unofficial co-host and we've never really talked to him about this community house that he just completed. Can you share that work? Sure. I mean, so I mean, some folks know that we had the Urban Network bookstore that we ran for like five or six years and we was forced to close that. And what we basically did was take that um, idea and took it to finally flat that we worked on seven and a half years, um, got a lot of community work, um, donations. Uh, also, we was able to get some some funds from the Ford Foundation to finish the, the uh, renovation. And so the first floor is a, a cafe. You know, there's there's TVs in the house where you can do host, host podcasts, host different things. And there's a, a classroom upstairs. So again, having like a rec center, but it's a, it's a house, a place of, of, of refuge, a place of a sanctuary that we're trying to nav navigate through COVID to be able to, to launch these programs particularly for people directly in community and throughout the city of Detroit and give them an uh, alternative to how to uh, not, not only to survive, but to live in our community by respecting and loving each other and building up the hope. Wow, that's wonderful. So um, Orlando, we're going to want to guest host a podcast from the community house. Is that, is that okay I, with you? I cannot, I cannot wait. I cannot yeah. wait to do this. And then, um, and before we continue this conversation, because I want to make sure we get this, I always feel bad about not highlighting this. How do people support your work? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, they can go to um, usefshakur.org and you know, make a donation there. But folks can re reach out. Um, I mean, you know, the support looks different. Like we have another community house that we, we're about to uh, finish doing some renovations on. And we're going to name that one after Ron Scott. It'll be the Ron Scott Community House. Okay. All right. So, all right. So you heard it here, listeners, and um, hopefully Orlando and I are going to get there. But I'm sorry, Mike, I did cut you off. I know you had something profound to say because you said so many profound things. I want to make sure you get a chance to get that out. Kind, <laughs> <some knowledge>. kind, <laughs> that was important because that is, we do need those things literally in the hood. You got to see it. You got to be able to touch it. It's a spot where people can dream differently, right? You are like, what I love about that example of of, uh, um, of an investment in the neighborhood is that you know like he said his kids and his kids friends came in and are like I didn't even know this could be here and all of a sudden they're excited about it though it's not the thing that if you had asked them what do you want in your neighborhood they'd be like I want to come to house with a cafe right like that <laughs> what they want at the same time that's the hard part about all this work you know but what I was going to say with the like and this goes back to that analysis piece. The commodification, we ain't do that. I'm just gonna keep it, I'm just gonna name it. I'm not even gonna try to sound deep. We have participated in it, but we didn't do that. Because we didn't know we don't own the media distribution for that. Can we, we don't, undo it? Can we start undoing it? I think what we can do, I do think what we can do, given the way the twenty first century does work and the way that uh the internet has really grown in the last 20 years. I'm 36, right? 20 years ago, if you had told me at 16, when I'm still on, you know, 
AOL, <laughs> like 4.0, 5.0, whatever. <laughs> well, you're right. Like, I would have never guessed it would be this point. Like, I would have never guessed in my 20s I'd have a computer in my pocket through my phone. Like, that's crazy. Like, I, I, can, I used to sit on the subway in my 20s typing papers on my phone. Like, you could have never told me that that would only be, like, seven years from me being in high school, barely. The fact that we're at that point, this point does mean that there is more power in our hands to do something different. I think we're just at that point of like the imaginative capacity and the mechanics to imagine in particular kinds of ways are a little stunted. So going back to the things like Yusef is talking about, we need that. We need more spaces like a place I just worked, the Village of Arts and Humanities, where we're teaching young people about media and media making and narratives and putting that into their own hands and paying them to do it and getting them fellowships and design and blah, 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 so that they're able to do that. But it is going to be I think it is going to be a bit of a, a, a steep hill, but I think the flip side is we've all got to get comfortable doing exactly what we're doing right now, but in even more public space. And being like, yo, some of these narratives and tropes are just kind of old. It's one thing to make a you know, for example, some interviews with a bunch of social workers and therapists who were in their late 20s when the crack era was starting up and they didn't even know what the hell they were looking at. They were just getting these crazy stories of like, and going to these places because it was like, yo, a mom threw her baby against the wall and her husband took the pipes out and they sold it. And nobody, they were like, what the hell? No, you can't. That's not real. And then they show up and be like, oh. But it was clear that mom was not in her right mind at all. And they didn't know what it was, right? And so there are all these stories that we've got to start collecting to better understand how this happened, why it happened, who was in power when it happened, who knew, like, I do think there is a point of responsibility here in terms of policy and understanding what's going on so that when we start talking about accountability and reparations and justice, we're not just talking about reparations because my ancestors grew rice and grew that's right, tobacco. That's right, that's right. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, we gotta, exactly. I need reparations, what happened yesterday? Exactly. Okay. <laughs> that's what I said, active trauma. I want, I want to bring this in. I want to bring this in. And, I, and, and of course, we don't have enough time for this discussion, but I really want, I want to highlight it. And that is the tension we carry, uh, especially in the city of Detroit. You know, in 2020, we saw a massive campaign around defunding the police and Detroiters just weren't having that, right? We live in Detroit. We live on the east side. We live on the west side. Uh, there was you know, a lot of a, a lot of pushback against what the assumption of what that meant, right? Because a lot of folks didn't even know what defund the police meant. P but people want people people want to feel safe in our city, but the way police goes about policing us is opposed diametrically opposed to our our thrival and our lives literally how do how do we talk about that in a city like detroit yusuf how do we talk about that in a city um like philly mike i think again it goes back to the narrative like who created the narrative and all the dynamic that's in it that we pass on for generation and generation and also you know, reshaping what safety looks like so like in a lot of our spaces people talk about peace but until we're able to define and, and actually 
see what that looks like. It's the, it's illusion to people in, in the neighborhood. So like the grandmothers on the block. I'm not mad at them saying they want to call the police, right? We need to engage them and, and show them not that what the ideal is wrong, but we have to go address JoJo. We have to we we have to do that, right? Not in a confrontational way, but if it's necessary, there's folks that need to go in the back room. What do you need to do? Yeah, but until we able to to do that in a, in a way, it, it's it's going to you no know, people are going to because they 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 they've been taught to believe in the system more than to believe in us, and and until we can replace that. And where folks can depend on us, where we're going to show up, they're always going to go back to their default. Their default is to believe in the police. Their default is to believe in Mike Duggan, even though that even though the private conversations we hear it all. I know he's full of shit, but he gonna give me what I want. And but and, and we have to. That's part of that's part of the struggle that we have to be able to um, you know minimize to maximize what what we want to do. And you know, I just and on this like you no know, through our annual backpack event. You know, we we we've been able to reduce uh, some levels of violence at times, or even like when, you know, me knowing certain individuals, they come to me like, "Dude, owe me such and such." I'm willing to go in and 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 address that situation and put myself in the middle of it, and and not everybody can do that, but we have to build those type of individuals up. So creating a broader spectrum of how we go go do that, but also the work that you're doing, we have to amplify that in terms of narrative. Like we, they killing us on this narrative game. I'm I'm all about it. I'm all about it. I just talked to Donna's Columbia class a couple of weeks ago about it. Um, Mike. Yeah, no, I, I agree with all of that. I think it is, it's very unfortunate that defund the police became the main narrative. That spoke to me, but you didn't, I, I'm not the one that needed to be convinced. You get what I'm saying? And like, I think that's the problem with narrative strategy is that people don't think about the audience, right? You have to, it's sales. What's in it for me is the other person on the side uh, or on the other side of this like equation, if you will, who has to receive said narrative. And I don't think that rang true for people when they were crafting this. I think they crafted it for their constituents to, to get them riled up. Um, and I could be wrong, right? But this because this is all conjecture. This is outside looking in because I wasn't a part of crafting the narrative. But again, fundamentally, I do believe in the concept. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that I did spend some time working alongside and even within law enforcement, um, public health, though, on my end. Like I was uh, specifically working with the U.S. Attorney's Office of Eastern Pennsylvania as a contractor because becoming an employee there takes forever and they got a grant because make a long story short they got a grant where they were like we got to make you a consultant and it'll get you started right away but i spent three years working on the issue of youth homicide and adult homicide and youth and adult recidivism in north philadelphia but through a public health approach that was all about centering theory as the core basis of what was driving the issue so for me it wasn't about synchronized law enforcement yada 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 like there were things i was I don't know if I can say this. There are things I would observe that I just wouldn't talk about, right? Because it was not about criminalizing people. It was about understanding that the root problem, like we're looking at the branches, but the root problem is decades, arguably centuries deep, right? And there are so many players that are involved in strengthening that root over that time period that don't live in the neighborhood, point blank. And so how do you make sense of that? And how do you organize for that? Well, these were new corners on the puzzle that law enforcement had never tried. And one of the things that I realized in the past, and we were making an attempt, and one of the things I learned from that process, bro, is that law enforcement t 
top to bottom. And this does not just mean police. That's the other thing that, that I think we got to get right. in this. We're talking long. about attorneys. We're talking about military. We're right. talking we are about ta it is a huge apparatus and they all right. work together. And that system at large is not built to hold the care and well-being of black and brown people. Point blank. It's barely built to hold that for white people. It's definitely not built to hold that for black and brown people. Definitely not black people at that. So the expectation management that we have around police keeping black people safe has a lot more to do, has a lot more to do with something called the availability heuristic. And Yusef already spoke to this clearly, but I want to name it for people because I think sometimes we can name a thing if it's a little bit easier to work with and go and you can point at it and structure it and challenge it and all kinds of stuff and, and reimagine on top of it, right? So the availability availability heuristic, simple idea. You cannot imagine with something that you've never had a touch point with. Like creativity doesn't come from the the absence of stuff. If you go to school for art, like I went to school for music, improv class was not get in a room and make up your own notes. It's literally go learn these solos, go play these things on the piano and memorize it, build yourself a vocabulary, and then we're gonna get into making new things, right? And so what from what you have built as the foundations to make a thing with right so reading works the same way we don't read by just making up our own languages and sounds and alphanumeric symbols you learn letters you learn numbers you then learn how to put them together to form words those then form sentences and then you can get later into crafting your own sentences and words and papers and blah 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 well it works like that for ideas in general Right? It works like that for seeing yourself in a career. This is why people have to see people who look like them in certain careers and jobs or whatever. It literally opens up a part of the imaginative me mechanisms of the brain and the body to begin to visualize and see yourself there. The only way we know safety is through policing. That's the way it's been taught to us. So, And that's the way we've mostly inherited it. And that's the way we organize around it. So when you go to a group of people like, what do you want to see besides police to keep you safe and you're worried about gun violence, of course everybody's going to go, the police. But not, but, not, but not when a white shooter happens, right? So in, when Ethan Crumbly went to Oxford High School and shot up his, shot his classmates, I think killed four or something like that, he'd taken bullets to school. He took a bird's head to school in a jar. He was Googling guns. He was depicting it. And he gets sent to the counselor's office. And his parents now now on trial after purchasing him a gun, because, you know, guns. But they purchased him a gun, and they didn't lock it up safely or whatever. And what I hear most people say is, well, they should have had a mental health intervention. I don't hear anybody saying they should have had a police intervention. At most, they're saying they called, should have called protective services. Now, if Ethan... Crumbly was Jamar Crumbly, he would have been subject to some police action. And so this idea that white males who kill or white people who kill are killed because they have mental health disorders and black people who kill, kill because they're disobedient or bad or something is wrong with their character produces a different response. One group gets mental health care, the other group gets police. Until we can begin to reframe our thinking and understand that post-traumatic stress, post-traumatic slavery syndrome, that kids who have been in foster care, kids who have been homeless, kids who have parents who are incarcerated, kids who have watched people kill, kids who have been hungry, and in all of these traumatic, cumulatively traumatic situations, 
may have some things that are just as damaging as Ethan Crumbly's mother having an affair and not spending any time with him, then we're going to continue doing the same thing because you could take a black kid who had so much more trauma than Ethan Crumbly. And you know what the society will say? We'll stop making excuses, no excuses. But with Ethan Crumbly, even though he killed so many people, they're still making excuses for him. They're still saying his parents failed him. I feel as though we are failing our young people. I love the fact that you were engaged in a mental health and trauma response effort in, um, in Philadelphia. North Philly, yeah. North Philly. I love the fact that you were doing that there. And I'm wondering what is the possibility of piloting something like that here, as opposed to continuing to treat this, because you're right, police, but see, policing happens after the fact. What if we provided mental health interventions before they were killing people, before they were committing crimes, when we saw that these young people needed some way to process all of the trauma they were experiencing in their lives? So this is a good point that you bring up with defunding the police. And this is something I try to get a lot of folks to understand. It's like, why is it defund the police? Because, yeah, it's after the fact, but there's also this thing where the police are interwoven throughout it happening before you get to that big moment that then has somebody incarcerated so with things around addiction police get called police are the first dhs call that is typically who because they don't know who to call they're like oh i can't call dhs i don't know 911 right mom hasn't been home for three days i don't know what's going on the kids are by themselves or yada yada you know whatever that is it is it is it criminal in air quotes i i guess but really what we have going on is a breakdown that's really based on poverty and some mental health troubles that is made an unsafe situation but is it something that should require the police actually no there are plenty of other trained professionals who could be brought in to handle that thing but it by default falls to the police now what was interesting about that work that i was doing is part of my work was doing police-based research so i would talk to a number of police officers many of them didn't want to talk on the record which was unfortunate because we only had we only ended up with like maybe 12 on the record conversations that we could use for the research but i had a number of conversations with people off the record and what i can guarantee you there are two core things that struck me as like, well, there are a number of core things that struck me, but for this part, there are two that struck me as well. They are grossly aware of how underprepared and undertrained they are for all kinds of things. And they really don't even want to do it. They're like, I don't want to handle addiction. That's not my goal. I, don't, I heard a story about someone being called out to the same parent-child interaction three or four different times. And mom, mom wasn't even hurting the kid, but the kid was taking care of mom and the neighbors kept calling. And the cop and the kid would beg them, please don't take me from my mom, please don't. And they're like, ah, ah, ah. how many calls like that are happening, right? Or there's a domestic violence situation where they're really both hitting up on each other. I'm not, and let me be clear, I am not saying in any way that women deserve to get hit. What I am saying is that there are cases where the people are legitimately fist fighting each other regularly and the cops have shown up a bunch and both of them are like, I don't want to press charges because he got on my nerves and I punch him in his face anytime he talked to me. Who's supposed to help with that? That's not really a police call. You need mental health support and services for that. You need something else to support you in that. If you were and you know harshly in the whole nine yes the police should show up but when they should figure out how to stop getting black women killed i'm sorry brother i'm sorry i, bro. that, I, I can't i can't i can't because there's never been a situation i'm a i'm a survivor of domestic violence the first thing my ex said is she hit me first first thing he said i have broken jaw can't open my mouth he said she hit me first 
that is so typical. So I think that we do need in some instances to make sure that women are protected. I get what you're saying about fighting, but you never know. You know well, what I'm saying? I want to be very, hold on. I just want to be very clear here, right? Because <laughs> what I am not talking about is true domestic violence mm -hmm. where a woman is being beat and battered, et cetera. What I am talking about are legitimate, like, physical fights. And this, I'm giving you stories I heard from police officers. I want to be very clear, very, very clear, where they're showing up and literally both people have fought and are saying things like, no, I don't want to press charges. They've been here far, four and five times. At that point, if someone doesn't want to do that, and the police can't do a certain thing. Because remember, this isn't about, I'm not talking about right or wrong, and I'm not talking about not protecting women. We're talking about defunding the police. I hear, I'm just saying, if we could if we could just leave that to domestic violence professionals, because I understand what police say. And I'm, I'm going to say this. I was almost arrested that day because my ex was a firefighter. He knew all the the police officers. He told me, if you ever called the police on me, they're not going to listen to you. Those are my lodge brothers. I work out with them. The only reason I didn't go to prison or that I was not arrested is because I was smart enough to be able to threaten them. I said, listen, I can't move my mouth right now. And you do what you want. My sister's a lawyer. My brother-in-law's lawyer. And I will take your fucking badge. If you, excuse me, I broke the law. If you if you take me to justice, you do whatever you need to do. But I had to defend myself that way. And then what they did was they questioned my minor children. I had a five-year-old and a seven-year-old and they pulled my five-year-old and seven-year-old and made them choose parents. So I'm saying that the police are horrible at domestic violence and I don't care what they say about what's happening in those homes. They shouldn't necessarily be there, but we do need to protect women because Black women are more likely to die at the hands of domestic violence than any other women in America right now. I think what, what Mike is, Mike is talking about is in a situation where police um, could de de-escalate, you know, that, that's one example. But, and we've seen that in terms of where they come into white communities. Oh, yeah, all matter. the time. They're good at right. it. Right, and, but not, but it's, they're good at it because they see their humanity. They, they right. see the ability to... to um, Resolve this situation. I don't need y'all. Can y'all just resolve this? We'll, we'll deal with it another day. When they come in our community, that's not the first thing. How, it, how has it happened? It has happened. I could tell you a few stories where certain situations I should have got arrested or got a ticket. They didn't feel like doing it that day. But that's not the norm in our in our communities. But all, and also around when we say defund the police, we if we meet, it triggers. We're not going to have no police. That's not what defund the police means. And that's, again, another part of the, the, the narrative. And also, the message. Too, yeah. yeah, the message. And also, too, it's the money thing, too. There's so many like folks who, who say they're for this side, then they, they be double dipping, talking for the other side. I mean, we got so... Well, no, and I, and I agree with all of that. Listen, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm for defund the police conceptually, right? We need fewer police. What I'm saying is that there are situations like domestic violence, and I think we need a more thoughtful way of looking at it to listen to survivors and to look at some of the interventions and, and talk to people who specialize in that because a lot of times those situations can be mischaracterized. We have a situation, I'm not trying to take us too far afield, but where rape kits were not processed in Detroit because black women were not seen as being victims. Black teenage girls not seen as being victims. So they just didn't process the rape kits for years. 
and we had to raise private foundation and donated dollars to process. And how many rapists were caught? Hundreds of rapists. Because again, I'm going to take you back to Dr. Joy Degree when she said Black women were not seen as rapeable. Right. We are not seen as vulnerable. We are not seen as needing protection. Um, Malcolm X said we are the least protected people in America, and we still are. And so I get very conscious of the need to make sure that as we talk about violence, as we talk about de-escalation, I'm not saying throw away the key, but I am saying we need to protect women and we need to make sure that we understand that police are hostile to women's vulnerability and women's needs in our society. And one of the reasons why policing alone is not enough. So agreed 100%. And I think if I could, I think you literally have underscored why we need to take that money away from them. Yes. Because <laughs> so, my point is not around blame and culpability. It's around the fact that there are moments where if something, if somebody says X and Y, the police are like, well, no, not going to do. And they literally will leave. They will just literally leave, right? And so it's like, so, so it's like, okay, if this has happened five and six times, is this money being spent to solve this issue in a way that, to your point, protects black women? No, to, that protects children, no. But if this is the only thing that we have that we can do, it's like the problem is we suffer from a lack of, I mean, it sounds overly simple. It's like a lack of imagination to an extent. But it's I like mean, you, you know, it was it was what I was saying to Donna in the beginning uh, when we Donna and I sort of had a, a a little tip about the the language around defund the police, and I I knew from the beginning that that language would not be effective. And it's not and it's not that I didn't believe in budget reallocation, but I knew that the language in the intended audience it would not land with the intended audience. And so I kept saying, "Can we say something like reimagining uh, the police?" Because this is something when we especially when we look at the the origination of police in America like we don't need to just defund it <laughs> we need to completely mm -hmm. take it up and reimagine what it yeah, is reimagine public in safety. our society yeah not, not even it's policing public safety public safety period. yeah that yeah. public safety is bigger than that it should all be prevention as much as possible do prevention and when needed have some type of intervention but yeah. we want to prevent as much as possible and we don't have a prevention order oriented society. Um, and so I think that all of what you're saying about understanding the meaning of trauma, all that Yusuf is saying about modeling different ways of being and rethinking and redefining and not allowing ourselves to be caught up and swept up in what so-called popular culture says we are as a people is important. you know. And I think that um, being willing to have courageous conversations about that is important because sometimes you get seen as not really understanding or not being you know you know whatever it is if you don't like bmf what's wrong with you you know it's our people it's <laughs> and then we we bring this in as culture and i just wanted to just raise one other thing because i want to see if i'm hearing this from you yusuf culture is something that should be preserved mm. but it's, it's dysfunction is not something that should be preserved correct correct so give give a example to, to your point right around the B, bmf series right and it's like many of us in on this platform, they well, you guys are educated or affluent, blah, blah, blah. And but we associate culture and being black with, with partying. Like you can be culture without partying. Like I have to turn up to the to, to prove myself. And these and this is the because we black is not defined. It's not associated with a culture and it's and it's continuing to be remade 
and reimagine through a BMF. Because also, again, I mean, like we talk about the East Side. I remember when, when the Chamber Brothers got arrested and they found a videotape of them passing out, you know, they had a trash bag full of dollar bills, passing it out. And when they when they showed that on the news, that's that's when the die get rich uh, mentality was born in, in the neighborhood. Like, oh, that's how we can make money? Everybody in their mind was trying to sell dope, right? And But what, what was the end result? Self-destruction of our communities. Absolutely. Listen, we could, we're... <laughs> I per I purposely I'm normally a stickler for time, but I purposely let this go over because the conversation is so rich. And I I have to say on the record that we definitely need a part two with the future Dr. Yusuf um, and Michael Bryan. I want to also go on record in thanking uh, the both of you for your generosity um, in this conversation, the sharing of your experiences, the sharing of your knowledge has been invaluable like my heart is is feeling something that i can't name right now i almost want to cry i a, a, an amazing raw authentic conversation yes we're gonna have to put the parental advisory on this one but i expected that one because we got yusuf on here no it was me no, but Yusuf already had dropped a few bombs, and then Donna, Donna went for Donna went for the gusto. She was like, "I'm a one up you, Yusuf." But I think, I think <laughs> Mike was already was like, "I'm coming in, I'm coming in, uh, soft because I apologize to your mother, Mike. I try not to make this. I, I I want her to understand this is not my normal speech. Sometimes I get emotional. It's I apologize, off. mom. But if you have topics. <laughs> that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Authentically Detroit, or you can email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com. Uh, it's our favorite part of the show. It's time for shout outs. Uh, Donna, you got any shout outs? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, yes, I have shout outs, but I don't know who to, I'm so tired. Um, I want to shout out Dr. Otuahene for um, her clinic um, on um, housing that's taking place at Chicago Kent Law School. I was the uh, speaker yesterday, and it was one of those things that was really stressful trying to prepare and trying to live up to her um, exceptional scholarship and sound good, you know, with all of her law students. But she's an amazing woman, and she has really helped transform um, the way we look at property taxes and ownership in the city of Detroit. So shout out to her and all of her work. Yeah. Uh, Yusuf, Mike, shout outs. I'll give a shout out to any and everybody, man, that's pursuing their PhD. Stick <laughs> we pray for you, brother. <laughs> black people. I love black people. Um, shout out y'all for having this conversation, you know, and yeah, agreed. Shout out to black women and black children because we don't protect them. So I think that is real. And I'm disgusted that you had to raise private money to process rape kids. Like, that's wild. For an ID challenge. It was um, an amazing situation. And my friend Kim Trent, let me shout out Kim Trent for her work in, um, in championing that. And, you know, you had women standing up acknowledging that they were survivors of rape. And it's not easy for women to do that. But um, Kim Trent um, took the lead. All right. Shout out to you, Kim Trent. Uh, we love you here. You got to come back. You got to come on uh, pretty soon. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. And as always, we want you to catch the wave.